You're listening to episode 72 of the Writing Life podcast from the National Centre for Writing. Every week we tell stories about writers and discuss writing techniques. I'm Simon Jones, Digital Marketing Manager here. And I'm Steph McKenna, Communications Manager. It's the 4th of December 2019 as we're recording this. And Steph, it's been a while since we checked in on this. What are you reading at the moment? Oh, well, I've just finished a book, actually. Um, It's called Night Theatre. It's by Vikram Paralkar. Quite a short book. It's published by Serpent's Tale. It's something I picked up when I was in Edinburgh, actually, for Edinburgh Book Festival. And it's a book about, it's set in rural India, and it's about a doctor who's a former surgeon. Um, He's at the clinic late at night and a family stop by and ask for his help um, and say that they've been attacked and they they need him to do surgery on them and save them and they're actually by the looks of things they they shouldn't be alive so they've got wounds on their body they've been attacked in a way that means you know looking at the wounds that they, they shouldn't have lived so mm. he can't quite work out whether they're living or dead or what's happened but they say they need to be saved by the time the sun goes up but, um, is it in the horror genre no, it isn't. It's kind of a, I don't know, it's a, a bit of a meditation on kind of life and death and the afterlife and past lives and sort of making up for your mistakes. So the the, the doctor is a kind of, a, for some reason or another, there is a backstory. He's sort of a disgraced surgeon and he sort of wonders if maybe, you know, carrying out this task overnight and trying to save this family or also kind of save his soul. It's a really thoughtful book, a sort of a fable of sorts, I guess. Um, And I definitely, yeah, I would definitely recommend reading that. What about you? Uh, I'm reading an autobiography called Becoming Superman. Oh! Which is not actually written by Superman. Is it not? No. No, it's written by J. Michael Straczynski, who is a scriptwriter and comic book writer who I've loved since I was a teenager. Mm. He wrote a television series Babylon 5 in the 90s, which some people might remember, and he's mm. written all sorts of comics for DC and Marvel in his own stuff. Um, but it's the first time he's told the story of his own life, which oh, wow. is quite shocking yeah. and awful particularly at the start, which is where I am, looking forward to seeing how he went from where he was as a child to mm-hmm. how he ended up being a very successful writer and mm. screenwriter and showrunner. Oh, uh, sort of, at the moment, I can't possibly connect the dots between yeah. how he got from there to where he ended up. Yeah, so, you'll have to say. Yes, hopefully, hopefully things would improve soon. <laughs> but yeah. So on the pod today, we've got literary translator and non-fiction writer Katerina Petrova talking with Kate Griffin, who is our Associate Programme Director here at the National Centre. Katerina is from Bulgaria and was our visiting resident for a month, thanks to support from the Elizabeth Kostova Foundation. A big part of this conversation is about the challenge of making a living from being a literary translator, which, as you can imagine, is even harder than making a living from being a writer. So here's Kate with Katerina. So, Katerina, should we start by talking about how you got started in translation? You translate between Bulgarian and English. Sure. Um, I guess uh, kind of uh, accidentally, because I guess we'll talk about this a bit later, about um, usually the rule is that people translate from whatever foreign language into their uh, mother tongue. And as you can imagine, there are very few... Uh, Americans or Brits who, first of all, speak Bulgarian, and second of all, are interested in translation. So there was very few people, there are very few people uh, translating from Bulgarian into English, and I sort of started being asked uh, by friends, working on film scripts, um, kind of smaller projects. I started being asked and I started doing and I said, why not? 
I know both languages, not really realizing what it entails. And uh, probably very early on, because there are so few people who do it, I was getting jobs that maybe I wasn't really uh, prepared for, but it was it was good training. Yeah, so I started doing it um, and then uh, kept doing it more and more. It's not, uh, because there are so few people, it's not very difficult, I guess, to make a name for yourself. So people started also to seek me out, uh, Bulgarian writers and um, the Elizabeth Kostova Foundation has different projects. Um, and then even though I never, it was never something that occurred to me that you can do as a profession, I guess. Uh, but the more I did it, the more I really liked it and got excited about it. And now seems like it's kind of what I'm meant to be doing without, you know, being dramatic about it. It does feel like it's my calling and I really enjoy it. And I'm grateful that I get to do it. Sometimes I can't believe I'm actually getting paid to do this because um, it's such a joy. And is it possible to make a living as a literary translator in Bulgaria? I don't think so entirely. I don't think it's possible really anywhere. I think in no. the world there are very, very few mm. translators um, who make their living entirely from translation. I think people always um, have to or want to do something on the side. A lot of people teach or they, mm. they're writers. Um, but I don't think... I think it might be possible if you really work more than full-time, mm -hmm. seven days a week, 12 hours a day, maybe to scrape by and also maybe do not just literary translation, but also more technical translations that might be possible. But I think generally it isn't. Even the most, I think, prominent translator from Bulgarian into English was Angela Rodel. So probably any book published in English in the last decade or so, she's translated mm -hmm. it. Um, she's also the head of the Fulbright in Bulgaria, so everyone kind of has... I think side mm -hmm. gigs or translation is their side gig. I think residencies like this are also very helpful in that respect that, first of all, they give you time and space to maybe get away from kind of your daily mm -hmm. commitments and engagements. But also I think financially they make a big difference for people to kind of be able to do it and take some time off to focus on translating. Mm -hmm. Have you been on many residences? Not that many... A few years ago, I think it was 2014, I went on a three-week residency to uh, Rochester in upstate mm -hmm. New York where Open Letter is based. Mm -hmm. So that was the first one I did, which was also very interesting because I also got to see how the press works and and also to work. Um, I also, a couple of years ago, went on a residency in Pristina, Kosovo, mm -hmm. uh, which was very good because I didn't know anybody mm. in Kosovo so I got to really work on my own and I guess this is the third one I'm doing and I'm doing I think I mentioned to you in November I'm going to um, the translation lab at Art Omai mm -hmm. uh, with the writer I'm translating and have you studied literary translation um, I just finished um, the MFA program in literary translation in Iowa just mm -hmm. this past spring, which is a two-year program. But before that, I was working as a translator already for maybe seven or eight years mm -hmm. without having studying it properly and sort of learning along the way. And I was very lucky that I 
got to work very closely with Angela Brodo, who I mentioned, mm -hmm. um, and she was sort of a mentor. She wasn't just sending work my mm -hmm. way, but also working with me very closely on editing it, which was really uh, a great school. And then mm -hmm. I finally did the program. Mm -hmm. And what did you get out of the translation program at well? It's interesting. I, I, to be honest, I wasn't sure really uh, when I went what I would get out of it. Um, I guess in the worst case scenario, I thought it would be nice for me to spend a couple of years in the States because I was kind of using this English that was, mm -hmm. you know, quickly aging. Uh, I'd lived in the States for five years, uh, but that was 15 years earlier. Um, and uh, But the program in Iowa was amazing, really, for um, so many reasons. I think one of the big things I got out of it uh, was studying translation theory, which I had never really done. Um, and it was interesting to then look at older translations, which, which I had done. And I thought um, that looking at them, I would find all these mistakes or things I hadn't done right. Um, and actually, to my surprise, most of them still seemed fine. But after having studied this theory, I could then say, because I would translate something before and I would say, mm, this you know, seems kind of right, and I didn't necessarily know why. And then studying translation theory kind of allowed me to think of what the different options are, and then to, you know, make a decision that was more informed, and then be able to defend that decision, and, you know, say why I thought was the right thing, rather than just, you know, it feels right for some reason. And the other thing that was, I think, great for me in Iowa is that um, the program is very practice-based as well. So there's, you know, a, a theory component, but it's also very practice-based without being um, necessarily oriented towards the market or publishing very actively. I mean, of course, mm -hmm. there's always an awareness of what you're doing, but the point of the program wasn't to produce something that will have to be published. So it gave me a lot of space to take on projects that maybe weren't that easily publishable um, and that I wouldn't have really dared to take on, uh, but also to experiment, which um, I feel like before I went to Iowa, I had this idea in my head that, you know, there's one kind of possible and great translation. And if I, if I just work hard enough and edit enough, I would get to it. And I think being in Iowa really um, kind of allowed me to discover this you know, joy of experimentation. Mm -hmm. So I would um, translate one poem, for example, in 12 different ways, which I think in real life you can't really afford to do. Uh, and that's not just fun, but I think it's mm -hmm. also very useful to the practice of translation because kind of meanings unfold when you do multiple translations of things. So it was really great in that way that it gave me space to try out different things, things that are totally unpublishable or unmarketable just kind of for the sake of learning. And I think that really will affect how I work from this point on. You translate both from Bulgarian into English and English into Bulgarian, is that right? Um, or do you mostly mm, translate from Bulgarian into English? Now, initially, I um, when I first started out, I had this idea in my head that translators translate into both directions, but mm -hmm. it turns out um, as I said, there is kind of this rule and understanding that you'll usually only translate into one direction and that direction is, you know, foreign language into uh, mother language. Um, so I did 
do a little bit of translating from English into Bulgarian, but that felt very awkward and very uncomfortable to me um, because I've been educated in English since I was 13. So in many ways, even though English is not my native language, in many ways it's my stronger language. It's my more active, more intellectual language, I would say. So, and there are all actually hundreds probably of translators who work from English into Bulgarian. Mm-hmm. And I thought there really isn't a point for me to do it when I do it badly. And there are people, so many people who <laughs> do it better yeah. than me and probably enjoy it. Like, I really mm-hmm. did not enjoy translating mm-hmm. into Bulgarian. I mean, it's interesting how we kind of categorize what is the our mother tongue and native speakers and this whole kind of debate around uh, who gets to translate what. What does for you have been the challenges or the advantages of translating from Bulgarian into English when English is your your second language, even if it's your stronger yeah. language for writing? Um, I am. Um, this is something I think about a lot more and more um, as times go. Uh, time goes, and I, uh, you know, get more and more into translation. I am. Yeah, I am very interested in this. Uh, kind of assumption, which I think mm. people just, you know, go around without thinking too much about it. And I think to some extent, it does make sense that the language you translate into, you really have to have mastery over it mm. or, you know, a very, very um, great command of it. But I don't think that necessarily translates into, uh, I don't think it's a very, you know, one directional uh, mm. Um, relationship you know people have you know very different relationships to language and how they come to it I am interested and I kind of find myself having to explain sort of my legitimacy to Mm. um, translate into English and I think in some ways I probably have it easy because I translate from a small language and as I Mm. said there aren't that many of us so there are there is space for people like me and I think a lot of small languages Mm. Uh, do depend on translators who are translating into their non-mother uh, tongue. Also, I guess, I mean, I, I mentioned this, but it, yeah, I, I guess I find it very problematic, this assumption that your relationship with language is fixed and mm. it's one directional and it doesn't change. I think, um, you know, people can have different sort of closeness and proximity, and I'm not even interested um, in you know, arguing that it can be done because obviously it can mm-hmm. be done. It It is getting done all the time. Um, I'm sort of more interested in the kinds of translations, uh, mm-hmm. I think, the uh, two approaches that produces because I think it does mm-hmm. affect, um, as a translator, you know, how close you are to the target language and how um, close you are to the source language, for example. Mm-hmm. This book, I think I mentioned to you that I'm uh, working on, one of its kind of prominent features are these very long winding sentences. And I think maybe if I were a native English speaker, I might have been tempted to, you know, chop these sentences up. And that seems to be advice generally given to translators into English is, you know, English doesn't tolerate long sentences, just chop them up. Uh, but maybe because I am a also native Bulgarian speaker, um, I do want to stay close mm. to the source, so I do. I work very hard uh, to make these sentences work in English. And I think this thing with, that we've also talked about, I think leaving foreign words in, which I guess is mm. generally a trend that people, translators, 
now do more and more. They kind of use every book as an opportunity to kind of teach readers about new foreign words. You came up with an interesting example from the book you're, you're translating where to translate the foreign word into English would actually just not fit. Do you want to explain that? So, um, yeah, the one of the projects I'm working on very actively now is a novel called, or I'm translating it as um, Traveling in the Direction of the Shadow uh, by the author Jana Bukova. And... Uh, it's a contemporary novel. It was published in 2014, but um, the plot sort of unfolds uh, mostly around the Balkans during the 19th century. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, it's not a historical novel. Um, and uh, so there were things. It's not. It's not written in a, a, any kind of antiquated language. It's a very literary language. But at the same time, I didn't have to keep things in mind. Um, with, you know, things sounding too current or too contemporary. And the example I was telling you about um, at the beginning of the book, there's a mason who goes um, to this uh, haji kind of rich man's house, uh, basically to ask for the hand in marriage of his daughter. And every time he goes there, they serve him a cup of coffee, a glass of water, and a piece of what would normally be translated as Turkish delight. Uh, but I felt like Turkish Delight has this kind of very contemporary, very touristy kind of thing, something you buy at airports maybe, uh, and that sounded really off to me. So I decided to use the word uh, from Turkish, which is also used in Bulgarian and in a lot of Balkan countries, which is lokum, and sort of stealth, glossed it, sort of indicated a piece of sweet, uh, sweet lokum to kind of indicate to the reader that this is something to be eaten and it's sweet um, and if they feel like it they can look it up but they don't have to you know they can carry on reading so yeah there were considerations about things sounding um, too contemporary you mentioned that Yana Bukova is a, a poet yeah does that kind of present particular challenges with it when you're translating a book and what's your relationship like with the author um, yeah, she is, um, um, she writes, she has, uh, two collections of short stories as well. This is her only mm-hmm. novel f- until now, uh, but she only also has two collections of short stories and she's also, um, writes nonfiction essays, literary criticism, and she's also a translator from ancient Greek and modern Greek and Latin into Bulgarian. Um, but I think she identifies first and foremost as a poet, and I think you can really, uh, see that in her prose because she uses language um, in this very poetic way, which is not to say, you know, this very beautiful lyrical way. I mean, sometimes it is very beautiful, uh, but I think it more um, that she doesn't use it to just relay information and push the plot forward, um, but to kind of, you know, create uh, these images. And she uses words and uh, not always in, you know, according to their first definition in the dictionary. Uh, she pays a lot of attention to sound. Um, so in some ways that makes her very difficult to translate. Uh, but I think because she's so careful with language and every word that she's put down really belongs where she has put it down. It's kind of this like fine embroidery. Um, so in many ways that makes her very 
not easy but very pleasurable i think to translate because i kind of have to the embroidery is already done and it's so fine and so elaborate and so delicate and i kind of have to redo the embroidery after her um and kind of you know really make sure that every word belongs where it goes in my translation as well and i pay attention to sound i pay attention to as i said these very long sentences um that she uses another interesting thing maybe is um yeah she i think is very mindful of kind of the conventions of bulgarian in which she writes so for example uh, Bulgarian very easily drops pronouns and they're kind of um, integrated into verb conjugation so you can easily not use the pronoun and it's very clear who's doing the action. So for example in I think the first chapter which is 30 pages there are two pronouns appearing in 30 pages mm -hmm. and this was something kind of impossible to do in English because you always but I thought you know English I guess the convention is that the pronoun and the verb are sort of one unit. Um, so I am very mindful and I try to be very sparing still with pronouns, but um, that was something that I couldn't really replicate. But I do, when I'm translating her, I do think a lot about, you know, how she kind of pushes against and challenges these conventions of language. And you mentioned that she translates from Latin and ancient Greek. Mm -hmm. Does that affect her writing as well? Just last week, actually, before I came here, I went to the launch of her translation of 101 Sappho fragments. And I think if you ask her, I think she says that when she translates, it's kind of a very um, different process for her. And she tries to remain the invisible mm -hmm. translator, but I don't know that she does. I think you, mm -hmm. even in her translations, I think you very much see her, which is, I think, you know, every translator is seen in their translation. I mean, they can say they're invisible. They can try as much as they can. But, you know, the translation I write is going to be very different from the translation somebody else. You um, unavoidably, I think, leave yourself in every translation. So in the book, actually, there I think because she's been um, trained in classics and she kind of makes these jokes, I think, which are... Uh, funny to classicists about you know Latin and ancient Greek and one of the characters for example is called in the novel is called Utis which in ancient Greek I guess means um, nobody and it was um, I think used by writers sometimes as a pseudonym if they didn't mm. want to put their name down but it's also used by Odysseus in the book actually the character who's called Utis is the translator so I think she plays around with this you know invisible the translator mm -hmm. is nobody in a way or invisible uh, but you know challenges that also because at the same time this translator kind of controls the whole narrative mm -hmm. and chooses how he translates things so and have you found that challenging to deal with these references and games and I guess I'm always a little worried and doubtful that I might be missing something. But at the same time, I was very lucky uh, in Iowa, one of my very, very good friends in the program uh, was translating from ancient Greek and Latin. So I would run things by her and ask right. her things. Um, and she actually did catch mm. things and references that I had missed. Mm. Uh, but also not just with Yana, but in general, I think I'm very lucky because I get to work with contemporary authors mm -hmm. um, and 
so I can, you know, a lot of the time it ends up being a very close collaboration and I can um, ask them questions and um, Yana speaks English mm -hmm. also, so sh sometimes she reads over my translation. Um, so in some way, I guess I am constantly worried, but I feel like I have um, this safety net mm -hmm. uh, behind me and hopefully um, they'll catch me. Mm -hmm. So it's a very collaborative process. Yeah, yeah, this is, uh, I think, one of the nice things it's interesting in some way because I feel like I work with a lot of contemporary writers, so I'm usually, always, I think, the first translator of their work, uh, which I think in some ways maybe is restrictive in terms of what I was saying earlier, that I can't afford to do crazy experimentation with their work. You know, I think if you translate, especially from ancient Greek, and there's 30 translations of a Sappho fragment, your 31st one can be very crazy. Um, so there's, that's not something that's really available to me. I think I have a certain responsibility to the text and to the writer um, as a first tra translator and as sort of the uh, person who kind of introduces this writer um, into the English-speaking world. Uh, but at the same time, as I said, it is very nice to um, sort of work closely with authors, I think, Bulgaria and like a lot of places, I think, or most places except for probably the UK and um, the States, Bulgaria doesn't have a very strong editing tradition. So a lot of the time books will come out and maybe they'll have been copy edited and, you know, commas are put in and um, the spelling is checked. But um, there's no tradition of really hands-on editing where, you know, an editor will say add a chapter or take out this chapter or develop this character more. Um, and I think a lot of that job actually often falls on the translator because when you translate you are reading very very closely and you start to see when things don't add up or mm. um, there's you know contradictions so it's interesting that I feel like also I somehow sometimes end up being the editor for these writers and the translation that I produce can be quite different from the original but not because I you know took liberties but because in the process of working with the author, we would decide to change things. So the authors are receptive to this kind of editing process by the translator? I think generally, yeah. Um, I mean, of course, I think there are these interesting, almost power dynamics, I guess I would call them, because, again, connected to translating from a small language into English, which, for better or worse, is the hegemonic language, and I think a lot of writers think that um, if they get translated, rightly so, I think, uh, you know, if they get translated into English, they'll have made it. Um, and they may also then get translated on into other languages. Exactly, well. yeah. So in some ways, I feel like, unlike probably translators working mm -hmm. from English into Bulgarian, who, first of all, probably don't get to work with their authors or ask mm -hmm. them questions, uh, but, you know, on this... A hierarchy, they probably feel like um, they don't have that much power. I mm. think because of the direction in which I translate, um, writers are very uh, willing to work with me and willing to take suggestions. I mean, I never, you know, I try not to impose on anybody, um, but I think writers trust me because they are interested in getting their work out in English. You mentioned that um, in an earlier conversation that your writer, that Yana Bukova is, is in some way in 
dialogue with Sebald, W.G. Sebald, the German writer, and particularly his his book, Rings of Saturn. Mm -hmm. Another, uh, I think, very fascinating feature of this book is that it is very intertextual, I think, and very cosmopolitan. And I think even though it is written in this small language, I think it kind of, in its aesthetics and stylistics and concerns, I think it very much goes beyond um, whatever Bulgarian literary tradition and is very much in conversation with what we, I guess, call, um, you know, global authors. I think I've read excerpts and people I've shared uh, parts of it with seem to find connections with, it's always very surprising um, with, you know, some people find whatever they're reading mm -hmm. connections with Sappho or Catullus. Um, or um, Gabriel, yesterday David, David was saying that um, he thought there was some echoes of 100 Years of Solitude. Mm. Stylistically and aesthetically, this kind of, you know, trip that doesn't really have a very, um, you know, it's not very linear. He keeps digressing. I think Yana Bukova's book is also very much about not, you know, the destination or the end of the trip. It's very much about these digressions and this kind of never-ending trip even on the level of words when i was reading the book there were words that i thought you know i was kind of searching for them still for my translation and they just um came to me and i actually emailed her a couple of days ago and told her i was running out the door to go see the exhibition um and she said that rings of the rings of saturn was her favorite zebald book so i mean mm. not surprisingly perhaps but i think this is the kind of writing that also I like to do, but it's also the, the kind of writing that I like to read. Um, yeah, very um, sort of non-linear, uh, not really plot-driven, uh, fragmentary, I guess. So you write yourself as well? I write non-fiction. Um, I've written, I used to work as a journalist um, and still sometimes uh, write journalistic things. Uh, but I used to write a lot of travelogues um, and uh, now sometimes write literary essays. Um, and actually the other sort of separate two projects I'm starting only now to work on are uh, is the translation of these two anthologies. Uh, and one is called My Brother's Suitcase and it's um, nonfiction essays by uh, Bulgarian writers and artists and film directors, um, sort of public literary or, you know, cultural figures about traveling and migration and immigration and this idea of home. And the other anthologies, I think, going to be called something like Our Fathers Are Never Really Gone, which is uh, essays about um, people wrote about their dead fathers. Um, and... Um, I have, unfortunately, I have essays in uh, both books, so I'm in other ways, um, I'm, I'm very close, I guess, to these projects as a writer, and now I kind of have to switch, I guess, my thinking a little bit to um, sit down and translate these essays into English. And you used to write a blog as well. I did, yeah. <laughs> it was, um, it's still online. I haven't updated it for a long time. Um, the blog is called The Ground Beneath My Feet. 
and uh, which I stole from Salman Rushdie. <laughs> um, but um, it was basically pictures of my feet standing on um, different surfaces, um, sort of around the world or wherever I traveled. I had this habit of always looking down for some reason instead of up at buildings in the sky. Uh, and I discovered that you can actually find a lot of, discover a lot of interesting things about a place uh, from its pavements. And, um, you know, sometimes, you know, this a very small thing on the ground can actually tell a much bigger, more interesting story. I mean, one example I think we talked about in Barcelona, for example, the pavements are, the sidewalks are paved with um, tiles that were designed by Gaudí. And people mm. dig them out sometimes and steal them. Um, I'm trying to think of other kind of cool things. In Sarajevo, it was very interesting. One was, because um, there's the very old Ottoman part, um, and then the sort of Austro-Hungarian part of the city. And you can really, if you look down at the ground at one point, it's a very sharp line. And one are these kind of slab stones, um, and then it becomes cobblestones very suddenly. And, you know, it's kind of this concentration of history uh, at your feet. And they also had something which was, I think, very, very um, disturbing and upsetting, but very important to have. They kept um, places where shells had fallen, um, and they call it the Sarajevo Rose, so because it does look like a flower. Um, um, in the pavement and places where people had died they had uh, filled the, the um, traces in with resin I think red resin so it, they do look like flowers but also commemorating commemorating this kind of terrible mm. uh, thing during the siege You seem to have kind of a fascination with finding histories and stories and these digressions and You've referred to them as rabbit holes. Yeah. Yeah, I do. Um, I think in my own writing, it happens a lot. Um, I also used to have this column that I uh, was writing for a paper where, um, Bulgarian paper, um, where I would use a very specific object that I also found while traveling and kind of through that specific object tell a bigger story of the place and I would really continuously just fall down these rabbit holes and one thing would lead to another and I just you know wouldn't be able to stop one funny one that I mentioned was with these Bhutanese boots so I was in Bhutan and I had these boots made especially for me which turned out to be men's boots and they turned out to be too big for me uh, which is ironic because they're the only shoes that I have that are made especially for me uh, but so I was writing this, and they're very elaborate with these embroidered dragons and all these different colors, which also mean things. Um, and I was doing research and, um, when I was writing the story, and the uh, prince of Bhutan had just been crowned king. There was a new king. Uh, and I found information that his boots, which were traditional Bhutanese boots, were actually made by this Italian shoe designer, Ferragamo, who had also made the red shoes of Dorothy of Oz for the film. So, I don't know, these mm. kind of endless, endless connections, which I think are there, you know, all the time if um, you just kind of stop and look. Or, you know, one word would... I would start looking at the etymology of it and it just would endlessly um, go on. And sometimes it feels like things full uh, come full circle. 
Um, and it is, I think we talked about it. There's this thing called the Bader-Meinhof phenomenon, which is, um, and I feel like it happens all the time to me that I would, you know, live my whole life not knowing something. And then I would fall down a rabbit hole and discover the etymology of a word or that something exists. So when we went last weekend to uh, Lowestoft. Lowestoft, yes. Yeah. On our Seabald pilgrimage. Yes. Yeah. Um, which was amazing. Um, but I was really fascinated with these beach huts, which I'd never seen before. I didn't know they existed. And we walked around and talked about these beach huts. Um, and then when I, that same evening, when I came over to your house for dinner, you know, the little light that you pull in the bathroom, there was a little beach hut hanging on it, which I, and I feel like things like that happen all the time. And maybe this is why the rings of Saturn was so appealing to me also, because he sort of kind of stumbles onto things and then kind of pursues them and, you know, finds out more and more about them. Yeah. But with him, I guess it's not always clear what is um, fact and what's fiction, which Mm. I also really enjoy. And I kind of, don't really need to know I'm not uh, bothered I guess either way uh but when I write I this is kind of a rule I've made for myself that I I mean I do research and I it, it is non-fiction you know it is actual documented fact or well I hope that during your time in Norwich you've had a chance to look at the ground below your feet and fall down a few rabbit holes a little bit and i think norwich is also a similarly interesting because there's so mm. many different kinds of pavements and i think kind of as testament to the what are they now six centuries since um the city has existed the cathedral and castle were built a thousand years ago oh my god yeah yeah and you can still see that uh, on the ground you have very you know modern new pavements you also have these old cobblestone streets Well, it's been a pleasure having you here. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you for talking to us. Thank you for having me and for talking to me. And um, yeah, I really, I really enjoyed my time. I really do wish it was longer. I'm sad to leave. (laughs) Thanks for listening. And thanks to Ekaterina for coming on the pod. Before we go, a couple of notices about exciting things that are coming up. Next Tuesday, we have the last Dragon Hall Social of the Year. I thought you were going to say ever then. I was, well, I was worried. <laughs> no, no, just for this year. We'll be back next year, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it'll be a slightly Christmas-themed, lovely gathering at Dragon Hall. Mince pies on offer? Yeah. I'd imagine so. Oh, is that true or not? That is actually okay. true. There are mince pies, <laughs> I promise. <laughs> I didn't want to miss sell the event, <laughs> even though it's free. Free yeah. uh, mince pies, though. Yeah, I'll be there. And we've just about wrapped up our workshops and courses for this year, but we will begin again in January. We've got beginners, intermediate and advanced fiction courses with Ian Nettleton. They'll sell out quickly, so make sure you book them as soon as you can. And we've also got a Poetry Pulse course with Anna Kathenka, which is a four-week course uh, beginning in February, which is great as a sort of back-to-basics course, which is perfect for first-time writers and more practice writers who are looking to refresh their technique. If you have questions about any of that or the podcast today, you can get in touch with us on Twitter and Instagram at Writers Centre. Search for our page on Facebook or sign up to our newsletter at nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk. You can find me on Twitter at Tarnamus. And I'm at Steph X McKenna. Please do subscribe, rate and review the podcast because it does help other people to find it. Thanks again. Keep writing and we will both catch you on the next episode. Mm-hmm.